it's a fundamental thing, accountability, but actually it's very rare. Actually getting people who are truly accountable, owning an outcome, um, having the courage to be able to say, hey, uh, didn't quite work out, you know, I own the outcome um, and not being afraid of taking a bit of a risk. It isn't as common, uh, even though it's fundamental. My guest on today's podcast is Dr. Lisa Intelligi. I first met Lisa through her consultancy launching pad, a strategic HR and organizational change consultancy. And I've stayed in touch with her because she's just awesome. She was previously an executive uh, chief human resources and corporate services officer at Simic Group. Uh, she was an executive at John Holland, uh, Origin Energy Census. She runs a podcast about raising a child with developmental delay or disability. She's just an all around great person to speak with. And I feel really lucky that she came on the podcast to chat with me. I really value her opinion and I hope that you can see why in this podcast. So thanks again for joining me, Lisa, and I hope you enjoy the podcast, everybody. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been recording a lot of podcasts this week uh, and you're a fellow podcaster, so maybe that's actually a good place to kick off. Do you want to give people a, uh, a quick introduction into your podcast and we can go from there? Yeah, well, thanks very much, John. Um, we um, run a podcast, uh, my partner and I, Christine Christopoulos, um, for parents of children with disabilities. Um, both Christine and I have um, sons who have disabilities, they're best mates, and um, we always found that the, the best information that we got about raising our kids was from other mums um, and other parents. And so we run this podcast to basically provide an extended community to other parents so that they can not feel alone or, you know, that they're not in it, um, you know, by themselves and to give them information uh, on services and things that we've learned along the way. Yeah, that's so awesome. Um I mean, I always like podcasting with people who have podcasted before. I, I, um, I've podcasted with a lot of first-time podcasters as well, and there's always uh, at the start uh, a little bit of hesitancy, And um, but, but I'm, I'm glad that we've got someone that's going to know, uh, you know how to sort of flow on these sorts of things, which is great. Um, I will include it in the show notes, as always, um, links to the podcast and links to some of your other businesses as well. So uh, don't feel like you need to pull over if you're driving or anything like this to to write the name of the podcast down. We'll capture all of that. Um, but Lisa, I, I mean, I've only known you for a little while now, um, but it, it was one of the conversations that we had pretty early on that I thought, okay, uh, this lady knows what she's talking about. Um, it was before the idea of the podcast had sort of come to me, but I'm, um, I'm glad that I'm able to get you on now. Um, yeah, you actually run a business um, called Launching Pad, um, and I met you through one of those Launching Pad businesses. But um, I mean, how did the sort of Launching Pad business come around, and 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 what's involved? Yeah, sure. Um, so I um, established Launching Pads, you know, some time ago, and really, it's um it's a consultancy that looks to help businesses um, to lead to sustain, to evolve and to perform um, through drawing on organisational psychology as a basis. So um, we have an evidence-based approach um, where we help leaders to develop their own skills, to develop the environment in which they're working, be able to adapt to change, which I think, you know, um, is pretty um, intense at the moment, you know, with the cost of living and the economy and the post-COVID um, pressures and sustainability. There's so much going on that um, it just adds a level of complexity for leaders and, you know, that's our focus to help um, leaders work their way through complexity and help their businesses perform better. Yeah, awesome. I mean, you've had a lot of experience, I guess, both in-house and as a consultant leading people through that sort of complexity um, especially from a human um, side of things and dealing with the human side of things, um, and it was one of the um, one of the stories you sort of told me um, about your your time working with some rather big um, construction businesses um, in Simic and John Holland, um, and yeah, I I think that I mean there was a couple of things in that, um, but uh, I guess maybe if you could give us a, a bit of an overview of um, the transformation journey that sort of went on and um, there's some great lessons here um, in relation to I guess developing great talent and hiring great talent so yeah I think probably that's a good platform for the rest of the conversation. 
Yeah, for sure. So um, I first of all worked for um, John Holland and to be fair, I have to say that I had a great managing director at that point who, unlike a lot of construction companies in that, what they call tier one construction companies, um, he had a really strong vision around how to develop people and engage them and how that would impact the performance of the company. And so um, he allowed me to to do some stuff that probably a lot of construction companies weren't doing at the time. Um, and some of that stuff was around um, looking at pay equity, gender um engagement and inclusion you know we were one of the first companies to to do pay equity studies to make sure that we were paying um, our female employees at the same um, rate as we're paying um, our our male employees we did a lot of work around um, engaging first nations um, uh, employees and did some great work there Um, we did lots of leadership development and um, so it was really a strong um foundation for me then to be appointed into the uh, chief people officer for or the chief HR officer for CIMIC Group Limited. That was the parent company of John Holland and um, they were going through some major transformation. Um, That transformation changed over time to a really significant transformation, basically pulling the company apart and putting it back together again in a different form. And um, and I learned a lot of uh, lessons from the the uh, the leadership in that was uh, driving that transformation at the time. Some really key lessons that I feel you know uh, have been invaluable, and I continue to implement to this day. Yeah, I mean, I I might just jump in there because um, some of them I remember um, us talking about, and, and the things that I think. I think some business and look, this is this may be counter to um, agency recruitment life, um, but I think a lot of them are, are very, very used to uh, every single time that there's a need um, going and hiring from the outside, no matter what the level of the organisation and what that culture looks like. But part of that, um, obviously, transformation was switching from, you know, moving towards a model, not maybe switching from moving towards a model where you have to know who your successor is. Like, I mean, your job as a leader, your success as a leader is actually dependent on you having multiple great successes within your team um, rather than you being a great individual contributor, having an average team of doers that can do what you say and then hiring from the outside when the when the time comes. Yeah, for sure. I had a really, um, one of the um, CEOs that I worked with um, was a Spanish guy and he used to say, Lisa, if you're not, you know, if you don't have somebody behind you to do your job, then you're failing as a leader. Um, so generally that was the principle that we put in place uh, in the company and and they applied that principle of hiring from within um, around the world. And um, when you think about it, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and, you know, we do engagement surveys and we look at, we do exit surveys and we look at reasons why people um, leave companies. And um, often, more often than not, it's because they feel like there's no career path for them, that they, to to get their next job, they actually have to leave the company. And so this idea that you um, that you hire from within as your first principle um, gave people the, I guess, the confidence and the um, the knowledge that they would be able to develop their careers within that company. And, I mean, you can't do it in a small company, right, when it's yeah. you know, flat and there's, you know, there's limited opportunities. But in a large company that's global, um, there pretty much um, is no reason why somebody couldn't really get great career experience um, from from that company. And um, so uh, that's what we did. You know, we um, we preferenced hiring from within. Uh, we made sure that um, we understood pathways and um, that we developed people so that they could um, take the next step. And sometimes, you know, that principle, you know, was was great and we were very courageous and and I you know I had to hold my breath on a couple of occasions because the jump was pretty significant into senior roles but um to be fair I don't think there's very few occasions where um promotional um uh promotions haven't come through in the end the people haven't let us down that we had a good idea of you know who was 
who is capable of taking that next step, even if they weren't fully cooked. Um, and, uh, you know, they stepped up into that role. So I think it's a, it's a really strong lesson that I've learned. Yeah. And I think that it is something that can just be, um, I guess if you're not used to hiring from within, it's something that can be somewhat absent in the managers and leaders of those businesses is that if you're not thinking I'm going to need to have my replacement in place from my team, it, I, I, you know, I could go outside, I could do whatever I want, then you sometimes aren't thinking about what things do I need to do in order to develop those people? What it, like what things do I need to just get out of their way for, even though I could do them and, and could jump in and support and, and guide them through it? What are the things that they actually just need to experience themselves? They're, you know, experience that like a level of risk, uh, higher risk um, within the business and be tolerant of that in order to create those development opportunities for those people. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think it's really important. And I think it's really important for uh, managers and leaders of businesses that aren't that first to still operate with that level of mindset is in, I should be trying to hire a people or build a team full of people that could replace me. Um, that's that's going to be a, a much better situation for us long-term than if there's no clear replacement of the team afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And it does drive a learning organisation. It does drive development um, of, of people first. And um, I think that's a really healthy thing for organisations. Yeah. I, I mean, there's always obviously a place for hiring from the outside as well and, and times where, where um, whether for, for senior or mid-level or junior or any level of the organisation, that, that has to eventually happen um, due to different circumstances. But, I mean, in a hiring from the inside first type of uh, organisation, I guess what are the different circumstances that do arise where you go, okay, then it makes sense for us to be looking um, outside in this case? Yeah, look, I think um, sometimes, um, you know, there are occasions where you don't have that successor who's ready now when the time comes. And so if that be the case, you know, then you go outside. I think sometimes too, you know, one of the the benefits of hiring from within as as well as it's embedding practices and culture and um, and making sure that, you know, things are done in a certain way. And that certainly was the case in CIMIC. They had a certain way of operating. They wanted to make sure it was embedded and it was a recipe that worked for them um, around the world. Um, but sometimes you want to disrupt that culture a little bit. You know, um, if you've got a team that might need a little bit of disruption or, um, you know, you have a business um, that you need just, you know, to, to just send somebody in to have a different perspective, I think um, that's a good reason to, to hire from um, outside the organisation. Um, and, yeah, if you've got, you know, future skills, like not necessarily in CIMIC but, you know, in, um, you know, with the advent of AI and digitisation and all that sort of stuff um, and sustainability, thinking about what your future needs are and maybe you don't have those needs readily available inside and yep. so you have to acquire that capability externally. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, one of the things that you sort of touched on as well about, you know, bringing someone in to maybe shake things up a little bit. Um, I I mean, I like that. I was having it in one of the earlier podcasts um, with Jonathan Ling, who um, led Fletcher Building, um, so was obviously involved in construction, um, sort of saying, you know, it was his responsibility as a CEO to build tension um, into the teams because you need it. Um, so as you sort of said, sometimes you do need to bring in somebody that's going to push things a little bit. It's not going to, you know, not bad people. We're not talking about bringing in toxic people. We're just talking about people who are going to challenge things a little bit and keep teams um, from just settling into a level of comfort where they no longer push each other. Yeah, definitely. And I think also, you know, they can um, they can be very um introspective or or you know you can have um you know that like thinking that um maybe doesn't really serve you well if you're trying to drive innovation and 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 thinking differently yeah okay and i mean throughout this time um as i sort of said you've had quite an extensive career in in sort of different large businesses um how do you personally go about building like a you know a high performing hr or people function yeah, I think um, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, in the t times that I've moved into different um, 
organisations and is something that um, you have to focus on, you know, the level of service that's given to your clients. So effectively HR is a service function. And um, so my first stop is really to work out how our internal clients feel and then looking at um, the experience of the employee um, and how that's working Um, and then looking at the capability of the the team um, that I'm working with and whether there's any breaks put on them for various reasons. You know, sometimes, um, you know, they can feel constrained. You know, HR people tend to be the meat in the sandwich. You know, they tend to be the people between the employee and the manager and they get squashed a lot. And so um, making sure that they have a voice and they're respected um, and their their, um, ideas are respected um, is important. Um, Yeah, so that's really kind of the things that I look at. It's good. And I I think that there's there's definitely like a balance to strike. Um, I'd be interested to see how you've sort of managed this, a balance to strike between coming in and, as you said, understanding what the stakeholders want and how they're feeling about the current level of service and um, thinking about it from a service level mindset is is great in that perspective uh, versus also, uh, I guess, starting to push things towards what best practice is and going, you know, we've got best practice, we've got what we do internally, um, we've got how our people are feeling internally and how do we sort of meld those things together. Um, I often find that people probably lean too heavy towards what um, quote unquote best practices is in what they've experienced best practice to be in the past without uh, the detriment of actually understanding how it makes sense within this new business context that you're going into. Yeah, and I think I'm a bit um, sceptical about best practice. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you have to take the context of the sector of the company and where it's at, its maturity um, into consideration when you're starting to think about what you need to do. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you'll end up with a lot of people offside uh, if you come in and go, "No, you're wrong. This is what this is what HR is. Yeah, not they're not all these other things that you want it to be. It's like, well, why not? Why <laughs> why shouldn't it be some of those things as well? That that doesn't make sense to just stop them all. Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's uh, it's almost like um, I, I say, you know, you have to listen to the heartbeat of the organisation to know, you know, what's going to work and what's not going to work, and you know, who's the arbiter on what's best practice anyway? Uh, cool. Um, obviously, this podcast is focused on hiring great people um, and being involved in both, I guess, setting up frameworks for hiring great people and, and running processes yourself. You would have had a lot of experience with this. Um, but I guess just diving into some of the parts of those frameworks, the interview is obviously a one major part of that. Um, it's a part that I would say almost everyone experiences as part of a job process. There's a lot of, you know, informal interviews, which we wouldn't call maybe an interview, you know, working, grabbing a coffee with somebody five or six times, and then they're making the call to just hire you based on that. But all of that is a, I guess, part of maybe it's an informal interview rather than an interview. Um, But if you're running a process like this, what do you think are the, I guess, the most important things to learn? Because there's a lot of stuff that you can't learn um, during an interview, but what, what things do you typically look for? Um, if I, it uh, depends on the level, I guess, um, of person, um, but primarily the interview for me is understanding more about the person rather than the technical skills, um, which you can cover off in a different way. And if it's somebody that you're relying on them having technical skills, you can verify that through, you know, um, doing some sort of assessment or testing or um, through reference checking. But, um, but I think for me it's about fit. And it's about understanding, um, you know, are they going to come into an organisation and um, be able to operate um, in a way that is, is aligned to the organisation, but it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, homogenous. So, you know, you, know, you kind of don't want to consolidate your culture so much that diversity isn't um there but you don't want them not to fit either so um really you're listening for that um pretty much straight up i think yeah no i mean i tend to agree and i think the the language that i use around that is like culture ad um rather than culture fit um and you know it's the same thing but those little tweaks in language can sometimes 
I mean, if you, maybe if you don't do great interview training, if you train interview, interview training everyone on why you're looking for those sort of things, then it doesn't matter so much. But if you tell somebody that hasn't interviewed before and hasn't built a team before, look for a culture fit, their interpretation of that might be one thing versus yours, which will be someone who will fit what we see the organization as long-term, not what your team is right now. Exactly. No, I like that culture and I think that's really good. Yeah. And uh, what is something that you love to see? Um, I mean, I've got a couple of things that I love to see um, from candidates during a, from during a hiring process. What are the types of things that you like to be looking for? Yeah, look, I think um, the first thing is I like um, thoughtfulness. You know, I think, um, you know, a candidate who's coming, who's done a bit of homework, um, who's thought about the role and has thoughtful questions that are really meaningful to um, to really understanding what's going to be, what's going to work and how they're going to be successful without, um, you know, doing kind of aggressive interviewing or reverse interviewing of the the, the hiring person I've seen that too where you know yeah he's done so much homework and they've got all their notes down and they want to just get through their questions yeah they do you know like a, that's it's a bit intense but you know you do want a thoughtful um candidate somebody who's open and listening I think you know who's um you know come in um and with a an open um an open mind and you know is is there to really have a conversation um and um yeah that's the things that i like yeah to see. yeah no I, I think they're really good as well um and um the way that you sort of phrase that first one is thoughtfulness um is it, sometimes a good thing um ra- rather than straight preparedness um because you know that sometimes the difference between uh, a good candidate and a good hire um is that the good candidate might be not interested in their current role anymore, have a lot of time to be thinking about jobs, have great sets of questions, but it's because they're prepared to leave their organization so much that they have thought through all of this stuff versus the other person who might be really busy and heavily involved in other things, but still on the way to the interview spends the time getting into the headspace to go, what do I need to know in order to see if this is going to be a great fit? Um, I guess it's, and it's probably a little bit on um, us as recruiters if we're working with an organization or the internal team to make sure that we've prepped the candidate to do that thinking um, before they come in because you do have the examples that you would have had plenty where the person turns up completely, haven't, hasn't thought about it at all, maybe doesn't even know exactly what the job is um, and, and it just it doesn't start well regardless of whether the person can do the job. They haven't spent enough time working out whether they want to do the job. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I've seen, actually I've, I've worked with um, one particular executive, um, again, a Spanish executive who, you know, we did some interviewing together uh, for a senior role and um, as soon as the person started criticising their current employee employer, he would just pack up and leave. Yeah. And he'd leave me there, you know, and I'd have to, you know, try and, you know, at least be respectful for the to the person that was there for the interview, um, because you know he he didn't like the fact that um, somebody would bag their current employer to them, uh, and I think that that's you know what you don't want to see is that people are so uh, disenfranchised with their current employment that they're there because of that disenfranchisement or their uh, frustration and not because they actually want to job yeah i mean i would even um i mean maybe challenge it slightly to to say that the fundamental reason for leaving an organization can be one thing you can be disenfranchised and go i I really just need a new job but then maybe not having the presence to go it's not good to rag on your existing employer regardless and the state that i want to come into this is you can answer that question in a million different ways why are you looking and you can say it's just time for a change for me. I've been with the current business for a little while now and I'm, I'm looking for something different. That's enough uh, of a, you've answered the question, you've provided reasoning and you haven't gone into the real feeling. I, I guess it's when people, um, and you want people to be open with you, but it's when people, I guess, don't show tact in, in their approach because you're thinking, well, how are they going to handle this situation when they need to show tact in the organization? 
Yeah, and it's just a it's a demonstration of lack of loyalty, I guess. Uh, that was the concern oh, yeah. of that particular executive. But um, I think also you don't want somebody coming in being kind of really um, burnt or negative, you know, um, and not having the ability to reflect on it and experience, um, you know, so anyway. Yeah, it's it's a good one. And I think that if you are, I mean, if you're a candidate listening to this and you do have those types of feelings, as in you're feeling let down by your organization and stuff, probably it's important to do all of the thinking and feeling about why and, and work through that outside of the interview because it is noticeable. Um, and it when it's still raw, um, it's incredibly noticeable in an interview because it's something that they can't not bring up is in it's so visceral for them that they can't not continually bring it up. So maybe just, you know, if you are feeling like that, taking the time to go, okay, then I need to work through this. I, I need to reach a level of acceptance and almost be at a stage where I'm ready to move on. And, and if you go in moved on mentally going, okay, then I'm looking for what's next. Um, then you might be in a better position to, as I said, represent yourself. And also, as you said, not, um, yeah, not drag the not drag the old company through the mud. Yeah, and I think you know if you need some assistance to get to that acceptance level, like you know, I, I have seen lots of um, people that have had really tough times in their employment, and so it's not to to blow off, you know, to say that that's not um, it's not um, valid to for people to feel negatively about sometimes about their employ their current employment, but. Um, just to make sure that they have really, um, you know, worked through it and worked through it with somebody if they really need to yeah. before they try and enter another situation. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that I used to see a therapist quite often. I still am in touch with the same person that I used to go to. And if I was ever in a situation like this, I would typically write everything down in an email to them and they would just reply and say, either it sounds like you're working it all out or that sounds like you might want to come in and have a chat and we would do one of those two things. But just, as you said, making sure that you do go through the process. It's not the company that you're trying to get a job with that you're going through this process of venting with. You, you need to go to someone who's an expert in this area that can help you work through the things that you need to work through on that. Okay. Um, I will. <laughs> I know we covered that one in a little bit of detail. I, I, I quite like doing that. But um, I guess one of the other things... Um, this is maybe less so about an interview, uh, but more so about whether you believe that there are any uh, core traits or characteristics that would make somebody successful uh, no matter what environment they're in. Um, so we talked a lot about environmental context when um, you're coming into a new business as a HR person and trying to learn the lay of the land. But are there some of those core traits that people bring to the table when they're in a new role that regardless of the type of environment, they're, they're pretty effective traits? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. One is being curious, which I think leads to um, people to be more open to uh, adapting to change and being agile. So, you know, you want to see people coming in, I think, with um, asking questions, being curious, trying to, you know, learn the business and, um, uh, and you know that kind of relates, I guess, to being you know high potential. You know, there's this concept of you know being able to process information and and um, and um, that allows people to to not just do the current role, but you know potentially be promoted uh, through the organisation. So curiosity, I think, is a really important trait. Um, I think you want to have people who are who are accountable as well. You know, I think that accountability for me, I've you know, I've learned over the years is a really um, important thing. It's great to be curious, but you've actually got to um, get stuff done as well. And um, and so taking accountability and owning an outcome, um, having the courage to be able to say hey, uh, didn't quite work out, you know, I own the outcome, you know, didn't work out the way that I wanted and this is what I've learned from it, um, I think is really the the traits that I like to see um, and not being afraid of taking a bit of a risk um, and, um, as I said, owning the, the learning if it doesn't quite get where you want to get to. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I like both of those um, and uh, accountability, um, 
it's almost you know if like a fundamental thing if somebody has a, if, if they're a high accountability person um they probably will make high accountability teams um and, and know how to deliver and i think as part of that learning as well um being accountable for the things that you don't get quite right um is an incredibly important part of learning. If, you know, same outcome, the if the outcome hasn't changed, the thing didn't work the way that you wanted to. Um, but if you then change, I guess, your whole memory of the situation to, you know, I never really thought this was going to work as well as it, as, it, as it did and it didn't end up playing out that way, you're sort of robbing yourself of the opportunity to learn. Like, as you said, sort of standing up and saying, didn't go the exact way we were able to do this to, to sort of get it back on track, but I would have done this differently if I could have my time again. It's it's good because it's a recognition in yourself that you learn. Um, whereas if you don't take that on and you don't be accountable to that, you won't learn from it and you'll probably make the same mistake again next time. Um, go. Yeah, and I was just going to say, you know, it's a fundamental thing, accountability, but actually it's very rare. Yeah. Actually getting people who are truly accountable is uh, something that, you know, I work with organisations um, constantly on because it is not uh, as common as it should be, you know. And so I think um, it needs to be developed, you know, and part of that is making sure that you've got a culture that's safe, that's supportive, that, you know, um, values learning uh, and that people feel they're not going to get, you know, murdered if they... Yeah. <laughs> Take accountability doesn't kind of work out. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of factors or um, or dynamic there that allows people to be accountable, but it is, it isn't as common uh, even though it's fundamental. Yeah. There's an asset. I mean, you use the word risk taking um, when you were talking about accountability as well. And there is an element of people that are risk takers also being maybe having a higher threshold for accountability um, uh, just because it's it sort of, as you said, it's not the status quo in most businesses. Most businesses are medium to low accountability and definitely low risk taking. Um, so you just, you know, when something doesn't go right, you notch it up to a, a mistake and the business will absorb it based on the fact that it's big enough. Um, and everyone moves on and continues operating in the same way rather than, as you said, owning it and taking bigger risks next time, but more educated ones. Um, and curiosity, like in, incredibly important as well. Um, always in a worry, um, you know, if you come into a business and in week one, you're making suggestions about um, the way that things should be. Uh, as you said, sort of coming in and asking questions and starting from a place of, I actually know nothing about this particular business. I know lots about general stuff, but I don't know nothing about this particular situation and it's going to take me a while to learn from the people that know it best. Um, another yeah, incredibly important thing. And yeah, probably if you mix those two things together or the opposite of those two things together, a lack of curiosity and a lack of accountability. Yeah. You're going to end up in a situation with, you know, maybe somewhat political people. Um, it's not going to be conducive to a really high performing team. Yeah. I think the other thing that I look for, if you're hiring somebody who's managing teams um, or you're working with people that are managing teams, um, when they throw their team members under the bus, that's, yeah. that's a no-no for me. And, you know, yeah. it's something that that is a red flag. You know, if you blame your team members and you don't take accountability for the outcome as the manager, then that's problematic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I'm very glad I got you on the podcast. I remember having a conversation earlier in the year and, Obviously, we haven't been able to have too many since then, but um, all of this conversation is bringing back why I wanted to be able to chat with you again. I really agree with you on a lot of things here. Um, I mean, I always think that reflecting on the opposite of what your ideal situation is, which is a great hire, is important, um, probably a part of this accountability thing. Um, has there been any, uh, I guess, bad or poor hires that you've made upon reflection where I guess through the interview process, you thought that'd be great? Um, and just, I guess, what was the, the gap that you sort of realized maybe was, uh, or what are the traits that those people show that look great in an interview and sort of don't come through in terms of being able to perform in the business? Yeah, look, I think, um, 
I think that it's, it is uh, one of the traps of um, of hiring people is uh, reference checking. And um, sometimes reference checks can be in code because um, because previous, uh, well, the referees don't necessarily want to say what it is um, that they may have had concerns about. And so um, because the employee or the candidate may have access to those reference checks. So there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of you have to be really careful when you do those reference checks so I'm thinking about a hire where on paper this person worked for blue chip organizations um looked really good did reference checkings checking but um the reference checks weren't necessarily forthright and that person turned out to have some um, significant issues um and you know, was really problematic in the workplace. So um, it would be really useful to have a better way of um, reference checking so that you can get more of a, a good read on the outcome of their previous employment. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a good one. And probably one of the things that um, I think if you're busy, you can run into a trap of um, is, is sort of rushing the references. You reach this phase and you know, you, this is the part where you can almost dust your hands and move on. Um, but you sort of see the references come through from the individual who sent them through and, you know, neither one of them is a former boss. Um, and, and usually there may be former colleagues or, um, or people that they've worked with in the past, but not pushing back and saying, look, at least one of them needs to have been a boss from one of your last three organizations. Cause you do, you need to be able to ask, that those that's the person that was assessing them um you need to be able to ask the questions to those people and uh, probably that's one of the things that we should be always doing better one of the things that i have i've probably seen more detailed and more accurate references come from written references rather than verbal references i don't know if people feel like when they put things down in writing that it's more of like a um agreement and moving towards written references is a risk but I remember when we implemented it in um, Planet Innovation um, for a while and whenever there was going to be an issue with the reference or it wasn't going to be exactly what we wanted, it's not to say we didn't still hire the person, but we were going to learn a lot from it. The person would typically say, do you mind if we jump on a phone call instead? And it was always like, okay, then there's something that this person doesn't want to put in writing, but they want to explain in detail. And that's when you really need to perk up your ears. Whereas if the person's going to get a positive reference, getting a written reference, they're going to write it really, really positive and detailed anyway. Um, I, I, I typically find that it's people that don't want to put something in writing. They want to call you about it where you're like, okay, then I can really learn something from this. Yeah. I think even if people are ringing you, they're not necessarily being honest. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that don't, you know, for me, don't um, outsource your reference checks to a recruiter. Yeah, agree. Or the hiring manager, do your reference checking yourself. You know, I get a lot of complaints from hiring managers saying they're too busy to do them. I say, you, you know, you really need to own that conversation and listen to it so, you know, you can pick up cues where people perhaps have um, some reticence about that employee and um, but don't want to say in detail. So, yeah. Um, and you can really, you know, push and explore through through um, having direct conversations. But, you know, having the same pro forma of would you hire this person again, what were their strengths, what were their weaknesses, that's just completely useless as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, and, and what I would typically find, so I'm obviously that one of the recruiters that would be doing references in this stage is, is that one of the reasons that they may have come to a recruiter is time constraints. Um, so, you know, too busy, um, need to outsource this or not getting the right people, need to outsource this. Um, and it's it sort of gets into that grey area of conflict where, you know, if the recruiter has got through to the person is accepted by the business, they're going to get a written offer and referees is the only thing in the way of them sending off an invoice, uh, then you want the referees to be as good as you possibly can be uh, rather than, as you said, using that as a real final stage check of are we making the right call here? Um, so I think at the very least, you know, if the, if you get two references, one is a former colleague and one is a former boss, 
um, then sharing those and the business doing the one with the former boss and you, you recruited doing the one with the former colleague. Um, typically, the colleague is going to give a, a positive reference. That's the reason that they're there. Um, but being able to dig in because you're going to be managing this person, speaking to somebody else that's managed them, you'll, you'll probably learn a lot from those conversations as well. So it's something I might actually start speaking to some of my clients more about and um, guiding them towards that because, I mean, ultimately we don't want the wrong person to get hired regardless if we'll get paid for it or not. That's not going to work out well for the business. It's not going to work out well for us long-term either. That's right. Um, and what do you see is probably the biggest mistake that people make, people, businesses make during the hiring process? Um, oh, look, there's probably bias, I'd say, and I've seen all forms of that bias. Um, but, um, but, you know, for, for example, in construction and mining, um, because of the nature of the business, the project nature of that that business, you know, you often see um, the hiring, oh, yeah, I worked with him before, he's a good bloke, you know, I worked with him 20 years ago on this project and so, you know, there's an assumption that he's the right person or she's the right person but generally a he um, for the job. Um, or just, um, you know, bias where somebody's hiring in their own image. You know, you get on really well with that person in the interview because they're a lot like you. Uh, and that's great, but um, but it isn't necessarily the best hire. Oh, yeah. I, um, I think I talked about this on another podcast as well. Um, whenever I'm interviewing somebody that looks somewhat like me, or sounds somewhat like me, I have to interview them so much harder. Um, like as in switch off almost all of my regular personality in an interview and be really direct because I know that my biases are flaring up. They're going to want to get this person through because they deserve a chance because I deserved a chance. Um, so you're right, not being able to pass on um, this, you know, mini me um, type of effect. And also, um, maybe not even like, I mean, the reverse of that, which is the bias when they play out, which um, it draws a different connotation. So you're interviewing somebody uh, that reminds you of your nephew. It's like, well, it, that person isn't your nephew. So whatever feelings you have about your nephew, whether you think your nephew is a scoundrel or you think that he's great, this person is not that person at all. They share none of the same history. They're completely different people. Um, so really i guess if you are in a situation where you find yourself leaning towards something like that they remind you of a nephew or they remind you of your daughter or your son or yourself or one of your best friends being able to try to put almost blinkers on and go okay then i need to <laughs> i need to step back and be a harder a harsher critic right now because otherwise i'm just going to give this person the opportunity yeah, or get get um, another person to interview them. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, like Bring somebody else in. Sure that, yeah, making sure that it's just not one person interviewing, particularly as you get to more senior roles or critical roles. You don't want to just rely on your own perspective. You need to get, you know, other inputs. Yeah, and I think um, in these situations as well where you do feel like your biases are flared up or they have regardless of whether you feel like it or not, being able to pass on the information to somebody else to interview them without your recommendation, as in just acknowledging that you've, you've been biased, as in going, look, I, you know, this person was one of the people that we were considering for the job, but I think that I'm not the best person to assess them. Would you mind doing it? Even if you've already interviewed them and formed an opinion, because as soon as you pass on your vote to them saying, I think they're good, their opinion is now skewed, um, rather than giving them the lens of, you've got full control over this, I'll trust your judgment um, and letting them make an independent opinion. Um, I think that's really important too. Yeah. Um, uh, how I'm always interested as well in how people have adapted and changed the way that they go about things um, through learning. Um, so I guess how is your approach to uh, appraising people or um, assessing people changed over time? Um, well, I think... Um... I think as I've got older, um, I tend to take more information in than perhaps when I was younger. And um, when I was younger, I think, you know, the the drive to, to achieve or to perform um, meant that I had the same level of expectations of those people around me and um, I would be less tolerant um, or less um, listening 
around what's happening to to people. Um, and I think today it's really important for people to take that more humanistic rather than um, performance-based approach because post-COVID, I think it's an expectation. I think, you know, the workplace has changed. You know, people um, are making decisions about where to work based on, you know, the employee value proposition and, you know, how um, companies engage with them and um, how they're, you know, they're looking after their well-being and, and and I think that it's a really important thing. So I think the older Lisa is more aligned to that approach than the younger Lisa who would have been more um, aligned to driving performance and outcomes. Yeah, and, and I guess it's that that recognition that performances, uh, performance and outcomes can come independent of the person standing up to all of those harsher um, expectations. Um, as you sort of adjust and you see more examples of the fact that people without that experience or people that haven't faced that problem before or have a different background um, can succeed and people that have all of the right tools and experiences and everything like that can fail, but you can't just rely on those things. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's and not just the older and, and younger Lisa, it's just a, the learning that I've had on, along the way. And, you know, we've done, um, lots of different programs of engaging people, for example, you know, neurodiverse people who, you know, in uh, in the in the normal circumstance of work or the normal, you know, flow of work would might, might struggle if um, they didn't have some additional consideration or um, support around them to flourish. And, and as it turns out, those people are the best employees, you know, and... Yeah really great at their jobs, really committed, you know, take less sick days, um, really want to be there. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't have been, you know, if you were interviewing or you were going to um, appoint somebody, it might not have been your first appointment. So I think, you know, taking a, a humanistic approach and understanding that performance actually comes through um, the whole person it doesn't come through the person that walks in the door in the morning and the person who leaves at night you know there's lots of stuff that happens to to people and and um in their daily life that contribute to um their performance in the workplace and having that whole perspective is really useful yeah that's cool um and is there a lesson that your career has taught you uh that you sort of think that everyone should should be learning at some point in their life um, yeah, look, I think um, I've got lots of different different lessons, but um, the thing that I um, have told my teams, I've got lots of things I tell my teams and they'll tell you that. <laughs> one of them is um, don't just accept something on face value. That's not the same as not trusting. Um, it's about um, if, you, if you're going to make a, a call or a decision on something, make sure that you have evidence the the reason for you making that call. Uh, just don't say something on on somebody's hearsay. Just make sure that you consider it. You look at the evidence and you make your judgment based on the evidence. Yeah, I um, the language that I've heard for that is trust but verify. Um, trust but is, verify. Yeah. Yeah. Go go in and go. Okay, I'm assuming what you're saying is right, or at the very least, right in your opinion. Let's just either consider this from a first principles perspective if we don't have anything else or um, let's look at how this has been done in the past or let's look at the data and just, as you said, apply enough level of rigor to it to go, yeah, we can we can assess this decision properly. Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes a lot of um, work is done in the workplace because it's always been done that way or because people haven't taken that next step of looking at whether it's needed to be done or it's the most efficient way or if it's costing you money or saving you money or, um, you know, making people happy and doing it. And so that idea of challenging, challenging, I, you know, as you said, I trust what you say, but let's verify, let's have a look at it and see whether it's, you know, something that we want to do going forward. Yeah, and I think that one of the things you sort of touched on there is, um, you know, whether it's just the way the organisation has done things in the past. I think the other thing that can happen 
Um, and this happens probably more in larger organizations than smaller. Um, typically, the smaller you get, the closer you get towards the founder or the owner or the person that's managing a small business, the harder this is. Um, but in larger businesses, you can also have the, you know, people are suggesting things for their own team silos gain uh, rather than thinking about the business or they're spending money that's not theirs. They're spending money that's the company's. So they're making decisions that would be different as if they were allocated money that they could either keep or spend. Um, so as you said, I said, applying that level of rigor goes, well, you know, is this the, like we could spend our businesses money on anything. Is this the right way to be spending this or should we, you know, should we maybe consider all options and, and sort of see how we should be allocating this capital? Yeah, for sure. Check your numbers. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're going to present something, just add it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah how many times that I can see people's presentations or their business cases or their, you know, requests have fallen in a screaming heap just because the numbers are wrong. Yeah, and and you're right. And this is even despite the fact that it could still be a good idea. Having mistakes undermines the trust of the of the presentation, so you need to make sure you get all that stuff right for sure. Um, a tangible takeaway. So a tangible takeaway for me is one thing that people could do today or the next time that they hire somebody, the next time that they interview, that could improve the way they get results. Um, do you have anything that is highly tangible that they can change? Quick, small change to improve results. Be really clear about why you're hiring and what you need yeah okay this is good because i reckon that uh, this would probably be the second or third uh podcast now out of seven so we're go we're getting to a relatively high percentage of people saying that the most important thing is being clear on why rather than you know ask this question or, or something like that it's, it's being incredibly clear on why you're doing what you're doing um yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I'm going to get like a greatest hits of a answers like that um, so that we can put it together on a full separate episode just about being clear on why you're going to hire somebody. Um, now, we mentioned this at the start of the podcast as well, um, but uh, you do have a podcast, uh, you've got a business. So I guess where can people find you online, um, noting that everything will be shared in the show notes as well? Yeah, sure. So um, my website is at launchingpad.com.au. And uh, Loop Me In um, is available um, on Apple and Spotify and it's loop or on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. Awesome, Lisa. Um, look, thank you as always. Uh, I, I do really, really value having conversations with you um, and apologies if that means that I'm always bugging you to have more, um, but, but thank you so much for joining me again and, um, and, and all the best with everything. Great to see you, John. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, this and every episode is going to be brought to you by Rosewood Partners, which is the uh, recruitment agency that I founded based on the idea that recruitment agencies and recruitment in general should be done differently. Uh, if you'd like to learn any more about Rosewood Partners, you can find us at rosewoodpartners.co. I'll include in the show notes a link to my email address, the website and my LinkedIn page if you'd like to connect with me. Have a great day and thanks again for listening. Thank you.